Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. Happy to be joined by Brian Feraldi from, many people know him from The Motley Fool. you got a YouTube channel, you're an educator in general, huge Twitter following. I don't know how he manages it, but we'll get into a little bit of that. As always, none of this is investment advice. Nothing in this podcast is an invitation or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. It's for informational and educational purposes only. And you are heavily encouraged to listen to nothing I say and do your own due diligence. Uh, Brian, on the other hand, has a lot to say that's worth listening to. So maybe you can learn something from him. Uh, that out of the way. Brian, how you doing, man? Bill, awesome to be here. And man, do you have a good radio voice? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I wish that I could say that I worked on it. It's just something that I was, I guess, blessed with. But it's, it's been fun to experiment with. There you go. We'll ride that talent out for the rest of your life. <laughs> I would like to. I'd like to. You know, it's funny. Um, I never understood what media could do to accelerate my learning. Like, I kind of looked at it as a waste of time for a long time. And then I started to do some. And shout out to my man, Toby Carlisle. He gave me a shot on his podcast network. I'm uh, not network, but his podcast. And it's just been great. I've really enjoyed it. So I, you've benefited from it for a while, I guess. So you've seen, you've seen The Fool from the inside for how long? I've been with The Fool for five years, but I've been, I mean, I was a paying member myself for many years and they have these wonderful discussion boards where you can go on and discuss the recommendations that they make and connect with other investors. I mean, that is where the gold is. For the fool, it's it's the ability to learn from and connect with other investors. So yeah, to your point, it's that is the most surprising thing about podcasting, video, Twitter that that I've found. It's the ability to connect with and form relationships with like other smart people that have the same interests you do. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's. I guess it's funny because it's a competitive world, right? And I think everybody's trying to outperform would be the goal. I, I'm not sure that's what I'm really trying to do. I'm really trying to get myself to the finish line is kind of like what I'm trying to do. And I guess if it's somewhat suboptimal, but it led to the optimal outcome for me, then I don't really care if it's theoretically suboptimal. You know, it's something I really enjoy and it gives me a life like I, I'm passionate about this, right? So if I don't do it in a way that's good enough to work at a hedge fund, I don't actually really care. Awesome. Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That, well, that, that sounds like a no-lose proposition. If you're enjoying yourself along the way and you're going to achieve your goals, does it matter the time frame? Yeah, I don't I don't really think so. I'd love to hear sort of how you got started. I, I really enjoy, you seem to, what I have seen you put out is a, a very cool and refreshing combination of long-term thinking and personal finance advice, but without being like preachy. I like how you present it. It's it, Your graphics are simple and also very thoughtful, right? So it's like easy to communicate. I have a lot of respect for how you communicate. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I got better at communicating by sucking at communicating for a long time and slowly <laughs> learning how to suck less. That, that's how things happen, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what what's your story like? How did you start investing? Why why did you choose actives? You know, just kind of if you don't mind going through it, I'd love sure. to hear. Sure, I've always been like some people are just born savers. Some people are, and I was just blessed with that uh, ability. I wasn't necessarily always great at saving money, but I just always had that. I have that innate mindset, and for like 
delayed gratification and obviously with investing and money, once you learn the principles, that's something that you learn to really double down on. For example, this might sound strange, but I remember in high school, for example, I would take my lunch money that my parents would give me and I'd buy candy bars and I would just like create a candy bar collection for myself. And I was like really big about like getting my candy bar collection to be bigger. I never, I almost never ate them. I like, I enjoyed building out a collection more than I would enjoy eating them. Weird, like totally weird, but that's just something that I did. I got interested in money and personal finance and investing after I graduated from college. I was, you know, flat broke in college, like literally zero dollars in my bank account at one point. And that's when I started working. And, you know, if you've been to college, it's damn hard to have money around. Like, if somebody has like a hundred bucks, you're like, wow, where'd you get that? So I was had zero dollars to my name in college and kind of vowed from that point, boy, this sucks so bad that I never want to be in this position again. And then when I graduated in 2004, my dad handed me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Hmm. And that was the first book that I ever read that explained some of the basic concepts about money. The basic concepts are everybody's in business for themselves, whether you realize it or not. Everybody is in business for themselves. The rich think about money differently than the middle class and and the poor do. Make your money work for you. Don't work for money. The idea of investing and compounding and cash flow and all those concepts just like immediately resonated with me. Immediately. And that just kicked off a media consumption binge that I have just never stopped. I just read Every book on money, real estate, personal finance, uh, investing. I've read books on like how to operate a laundry facility, like anything that has to do with making money, uh, saving money, investing money, and growing wealthy. I have just consumed endless content about that. That naturally led me to the the Motley Fool in like say 2005. Uh, I started reading their website. I started investing on my own terribly. Terri- just terribly because I didn't know what I was doing. I made so what t- was what was your uh, terrible experience? What were you focused on at the time? Uh, I would be a Robinhood trader today if I was just starting today. I mean, it's it's just mm-hmm. as easy as that. I would be looking for what is going to go up in the next hour, two hours, two days. Try and buy that thing and then try and sell that thing for a higher price later. That's what I thought investing was. So I started out with penny stocks. My criteria was: is it huh. below? Is it below a dollar? That, that was my checklist. Huh. Below a dollar. There you go. I'm interested. <laughs> well, the good news is you got to improve your checklist by yes. making some mistakes early. That's, that's how you get refined, right? Just making, yeah. make, I made tons and tons of mistakes early on and they really hurt. The good news is I made them without leverage and I made them when I only had hundreds of dollars. So it, it really hurt. Like the mental scars are still there, but that was like the best tuition I ever, I ever could have paid. It's making mistakes with a little bit of money. But that kind of how I got started. And then I learned about The Motley Fool. I eventually became a uh, paying subscriber. I remember reading my first issue of The Motley Fool and reading the write-up that they did. And I was like, oh my God, these guys research businesses a hundred times better than I do. And they presented the, here's the business. Here's the, here's the growth trajectory. Here's the risks. Here's the valuation. And that just like, I just started spending hours a day on the full discussion boards and connecting with other investors. And, and it's just like, 
through trial and error, seeing what works and what doesn't, studying the markets, you kind of learn what your investing style is. And I'm a big believer in paying it forward and teaching other people all the landmines that I stepped on so I can say, hey, don't step on this landmine. (laughs) Yeah. How would you classify yourself as an investor today? It seems as though you're very focused on quality companies with growth potential. Is that a fair characterization? Yep. That, that, I would say that would be pretty, pretty fair. If you had to classify me, I don't really believe in the growth versus value distinction. I think all investing is value investing. And it's just crazy to think that something could be a value when it's trading at 100 times sales and 1,000 times earnings. But that can be a value investing if that thing goes on to be worth much, much more in the future. I've just learned for myself what I am personally after is high quality, high growth, low risk businesses that I think are capable of compounding shareholder wealth for years and years and years. And if you can just find some of those, a few of those, and get those in your portfolio and hold them voraciously over long periods of time, you'll do very well. I mean, that's essentially how the market works anyway. It's a very small number of very high quality companies that drive almost all of the market's returns. And I try and look for those companies, pick out the characteristics that I see that suggest that I could have found uh, one of those in the future, make lots of small bets on those businesses, add to the ones that are winning, ignore the ones that are losing, and continually do that process over and over again. And I think that'll work out. So when you say add to the ones that are winning, are you referring to like that your stock price is going up or are you saying that the fundamentals are improving over time? It's usually both. Usually if a business is really winning, its stock price is going to go up, but uh, that's an important distinction. When I say winning, I mean the business is winning. Take any, any successful company literally any mega winner throughout history. And there are going to be times when that business is doing just fine and that stock is going in the wrong direction. I mean, just in the last, geez, seven months now, you look at a stock chart of Zoom video communications, pick any number from that company's recent earnings reports, any number, and you'll be like, looks good. Looks great. Yeah. Like it's going straight up. That stock is down 40% over the last six months from its all-time high. Now, prior to that, it was up huge. But when I, when I see that those two things, I see a business that's winning and its stock price is, is suffering temporarily. Temporarily, if you zoom out, Zoom has been a fantastic investment. But that's what I mean. I mean, I mean the business is winning. More customers, uh, higher revenue, margins are stable and rising, profits are, are expanding, new products, new services, great corporate culture, expanding opportunity, et cetera. Yeah, that makes sense to me. One of the things that like as I've I've studied a little bit more of what the fool I can't speak really intelligently, but I've tried to consume everything that I can that David Gardner has put out in public. And one of the things that is sort of I don't want to say difficult to reconcile for me, but had like I really had to push myself to get over is I come from like the traditional value camp. So, my personality was one that I always thought that I had to be like, you know, the smartest guy in the room to make some money in the market. And I realized, one, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, so it's probably not a great strategy. And two, maybe waiting to to pick spots in quality companies with temporary problems is 
slightly better idea for me. And I guess that like when I see something like Zoom, I have historically been so reluctant because of the studies of, you know, valuation deciles and how poorly the valuation decile can or I guess is likely to lead to over the next sort of year or whatever the study period is. What I have begun to appreciate about what David preaches, and I believe you agree with how he thinks, is the idea of this stock is so insanely priced probably actually leads some fundamentals that people are underappreciating, and stocks that really win tend to always be that overpriced. I guess that I'm sort of rambling here, but that's been the hang up that I've had, right? It's like, how can a value guy also like something like Zoom or something like Peloton? But I, I have started to understand over the past year why that strategy can make sense, or at least I think it does. So you want to riff on that I'm, at all? I'm, I'm cut from the same cloth you are, like the exact same cloth you are. If I mean, if you study, if you're into investing, you are, of course, going to come across Ben Graham. Warren Buffett and the famous value investors that say the goal of investing is to buy something for less than it is intrinsically worth today. Like that concept just makes sense. It really does. It, it really does that you, okay, uh, you want to find good companies that can grow, but you don't want to overpay for them. And the way that you don't overpay is you, you do a discounted cash flow analysis, you make really conservative assumptions, and then you wait until that, that buy price comes along and then you hop in. And that's, that's a perfectly fine way to invest. There are lots of people that follow that strategy successfully. I think that's actually a really hard way to beat the market. You can clearly do it, and it's a style that works and is attracted to a lot of people. I've learned by studying exactly the person you just mentioned, David Gardner, that it's one of the smartest, one of the best things you can do is ignore valuation, or at, at the very least, seriously de-emphasize valuation. If you study investing, it's like you're told valuation like comes first. It's like the very first thing. It's like the it's it is the lens that you view the world through is valuation first and everything else comes second. And what David has taught me to do is to say put valuation 10th or 20th and really focus on the characteristics 1 through 9 first. Uh, is who's in charge? What's Jeff Bezos worth? How much is, is he worth as an, an owner-operator? He's been undervalued the entire way. He's been overpriced and undervalued the entire way. Like, that's a hard concept to get around. How about the, the economics of the business? How about the opportunity ahead? How about the company's brand? How about the company's competitive advantage? How about the opportunity that's opening up in front of the company? How about the optionality of the business? I think that those factors are the true things that drive long-term returns. I mean, just riffing, but like in 1997, roughly when, when Amazon came public, what did it sell? Books. Correct. What does it sell yes. today? Everything. Correct. Okay. So in <laughs> 1997, you had to have the foresight to say, yes, this is currently Earth's biggest bookstore, but what if they sell groceries? What if they sell DVDs? What if they sell consumer goods? What if they get into any number of businesses? You had no ability to predict Prime, Amazon Prime. 
You had no ability to predict Echo and the Amazon line of products. You had no ability to predict Amazon Web Services. Yet all of those other business lines that you couldn't have really predicted were going to happen in 1997 ended up driving all of the market gains that, that we have seen. So, and those are the kind of things that will never appear on a discounted cash flow statement. But yet they are the thing that have driven more than a trillion dollars in value for early investors that held on. So that's why when you see things like that, and you look back at some of the, like, the greatest investments that I've made, a lot of them have been completely surprising with products that they've come out with, success that they've had, new businesses that they've expanded into. And that's just a concept called that uh, David calls optionality or the business to have multiple futures. And that's a really important part of investing in value creation, but it's just never going to be captured if you focus solely on uh, value. Can I quickly share my screen with you? I want to point out an uh, article. I'll do my yeah, best to, just, to describe it. For sure, man. This is what it's like to do a podcast with a pro. They, they know <laughs> right away, hey, can I share my screen? Yeah. Have you ever read this article by Morgan Housel? It's called, In Hindsight, How Much Should You Have Paid for That Company? Has this ever come across you? Oh, no, but I'm sure I'm going to like this. I like okay. what Morgan does. Yeah, Morgan he's a knows. smart guy. So what Morgan yeah. did is in, and let's see, in 2013, he went back to 1995 and said, okay, here are components of the Dow or at least the components of the Dow in 2012. Companies like 3M, Chevron, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, etc. And he said, okay, he has a table here. And this table says, what was the P.E. ratio that these stocks traded at in 1995? So 3M was trading at 22 times earnings. And then he did another calculation that says, how much should an investor have been willing to pay? What is the P.E. ratio that investor would have been willing to pay to earn an 18% return, an 8% return over the next 17 years, aka a market matching return. Well, take 3M. 3M was trading at 22 times earnings, but investors could have been willing to pay 37 times earnings for 3M in 1995 to earn an 8% return. So 3M was trading at 22 times earnings, and it was undervalued by more than 50%. Okay, and if you look at Alcoa, the very next stock, Alcoa was trading at 10 times earnings in 1995. Yeah, Alcoa what, had a rough run. <laughs> what did you have to pay? You had to pay three times earnings in 1995 yeah. for Alcoa to earn an 8% return. And if you look at this, start, this table that he produced and just go up and down it, you'll find that United Technologies was trading at 11 times earnings, and investors should have been willing to pay 43 times earnings. United Health was trading at 28. Investors should have been willing to pay 76 times earnings. And this table is just a great example to me of what do the businesses have in common that you w should have been willing to pay far higher price for? They're all high quality. They're all awesome. And it, this just shows to me, reinforces to me how much folly it can be with overly focusing on valuation and how if you have found, if you truly have found a great company, don't let valuation get in your way. Because even if it's priced highly, it still could be dramatically undervalued. Yeah, I got to make a side comment real quick. You're very enjoyable to talk to. I like your energy. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So anyway, now that I've made it a little weird. Um, so, okay. So the, the thing that is ringing out in my head, first of all, I agree with you. And I think that it makes sense. 
Secondly, how do you prevent yourself from seeing outliers everywhere, right? Because the skeptic is going to say, great, you pulled up a bunch of companies, you looked in hindsight, and you're not investing out the rear view mirror, right? We're all trying to invest through the windshield. So yes, in retrospect, that's what happened. But if you just see roses everywhere, you know, you're bound to be let down. So how do you mitigate against that risk? My sense, not to give you a leading answer, but is position sizing out of the gate and monitoring. But I'm just kind of curious to hear how you think about it. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Like, and everybody has a process that, that works for them. So I'll describe to you the process that I have. And I'm not claiming this is best. I just say it's the best version of what I've found so far. Yeah. What I do is I make lots of bets. I have a screening process that I go through with any company that comes across my radar. I have a checklist that I put them through. And this checklist is a, it pumps out a score between zero of 100. And it's very consistent. I, I consistently take any company that I come across and I, and I put it through here. And at the backside, I get a result that tells me it's designed to screen for the business qualities that I find attractive and screen out the business qualities that I don't find attractive. Hmm. It's not perfect. Never will be. And there's a lot of art to it. For example, I put a number on the company's moat, zero to, 50, zero to 20 on the company's moat. I mean, that's a wild guess. Yeah. <laughs> there's not, no, no other way to say it. It's a wild guess. I put a number but on the company. at least it forces you to think about it, yes. right? That's yeah. the value. The value yeah. is not the end result or the exact number that comes out. The value is the process of forcing myself to go through and think things through. And whenever I make a huge blunder, I update the process. So that's the value of it. So for me, if I find a company that checks a lot of the, the majority of the boxes that I look for uh, in a company, and I think it has huge potential ahead, I'll buy it. I will add a tiny little bit of it to my portfolio. From there, I watch it and I say, okay, here are the, and I write down in my journal, uh, my investing journal, here are the reasons I'm buying this stock. Here are the things that I'm looking for. Here are the reasons why I think this could be an X rate growth stock. Then I watch it for a quarter, two quarters, three quarters. And I see, is, is the business doing what I said it was going to do, what I hoped that it was going to do? Uh, are there any new risks that are, are coming along? And I find uh, the companies that are outperforming my expectations, I add more capital to those companies over time. And the ones that don't just fade away into obscurity and they don't get any more capital. And then once I have devoted up to the maximum that I will put into a position over time is 3% of my, of my portfolio. Like that's the most that I would ever put into a, a company over time. After that, I don't add any more capital. It is up to the company to earn a higher spot in my portfolio. So if you look at my portfolio today, I have positions that are 9%, 10% roughly. And that's not because I made them that high. That's because I put a little bit of capital into them and then they were 10 plus baggers. And they earned their the highest spots in my portfolio. And that's how I let my portfolio concentrate itself into the best performing companies is by just not selling the best ones I own. Hmm. Why is 3% your maximum? I mean, 
I, I'm not I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but that's kind of an interesting sort of thing to say. That's the most that I'm going to put in, right? Because part of me is like, well, if you really find a winner, don't you want to bet it harder? But I can understand why you would want to resist that urge also. Because I'm wrong a lot? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a number I, I mean, that it. makes perfect sense to me. It's because it's a number I picked out of my hat. Yeah. It's not like I did statistical regression analysis and came up with 3%. It's just a number that I'm comfortable with. And, and that's a rule that I learned the hard way. Once upon a time, not that many years ago, I had an outsized position in a pipeline company called Kinder Morgan, KMI. Mm. That company checked like every box for me, like every box at the time. Uh, founder-led businesses, great economics, take or, pay, take or pay contracts. They were immune from energy price swings because they didn't care about the price of the commodity. They just cared. They made money when they moved it. Yeah. So I put five plus percent of my portfolio into that company. And then I layered on options on top of that, a bullish option position, because I, I thought the company was such a low risk bet. Lo and behold, a few years, like 18 months later, energy prices fell through the floor and Kinder Morgan stock sank like a stone. And I was like, this makes no sense. This company is supposed to be insulated. Well, turns out that it doesn't matter if you are insulated. What matters is, are the people on the other side of those contracts yeah. insulated? Yeah, you got counterparty risk. And, and when, your when your counterparty, when your counterparties, when your customers, the people that, are, that generate your revenue are going bankrupt and, and pleading for better terms, that's going to impact your financials. So I lost, that was the biggest dollar amount loss I've ever taken on a stock. And from there, I was like, all right, another mental scar. But I learned a lesson. Go slow. Make your best, make your biggest holdings earn their spot. Don't, don't force it. Yeah, that's not how I invest at all. But I have gotten myself to a point where now I'm thinking that, I don't want to say like everything I do is wrong because that's that doesn't make any sense to say. <laughs> Because I, I, I am reasonably decent as an investor. I think I have a long way to go. But, you know, like, yeah, well, I, I think the day that you stop thinking that you have a long way to go is the day you turn into a pretty bad investor. <laughs> but like, I had a lot of my portfolio in curate retail last year. And the way I sized it was I, I sat down with my wife and I said to her, like, how much can I lose on this position before you'll resent me for the rest <laughs> of our lives? Right? Fair. <laughs> because I, I, I thought it was a really good bet. And it, it was. But what I'm wondering going forward is, you know, is that really the smartest amount of risk to take in my life? And it's it's balancing sort of what I think is very smart about what I've learned from Mr. Gardner and like talking to you and Matt Cochran and versus like what I have learned from Buffett. And what I just sort of realize is I would love to be able to invest like Buffett has but he's Warren Buffett and I'm Bill Brewster and like I am not that. Importantly, right? so, Warren Buffett started investing in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when the market was unbelievably inefficient, when information was hard to come by, where you could get a serious edge by digging through SEC filings and just having access to them. Now, take nothing away from his genius, genius and how well he's done, but it's a different time. It's a different time now in good ways and in bad ways. And he, I think he had a lot of advantages just by starting in the 1950s. Yeah, I think that's objectively true. And I think that he morphed earlier, thanks to Charlie, than a lot of people have. And, and you know, I guess like one of the things that 
would make me nervous about adopting the strategy that you run is it seems like everybody's looking at those same stocks. On the other hand, like you do own the best businesses if you run that strategy. And that seems like a pretty good way to get wealthy as long as you don't overpay. There, uh, and by overpay, I mean like egregiously, right? We're, we might be looking at the market and I might be looking at the same stocks, but the market and I are not looking at the same holding period. That's my edge. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. Like, do you mind sort of expanding on that? Because I know what you mean, but I'd love to hear you articulate what you're saying. The market is generally focused on the next six months, maybe year, maybe, maybe 18 months. That's kind of how far out the market tends to look and, and price things. And if you just take those same, a lot of the same principles that, uh, that make for a, a high-priced stock, the market's pretty good at saying, this company's awesome, and then pricing it highly. But even if you, know, even if you found the next Amazon and you added it to your portfolio, you wouldn't get the big returns from Amazon unless you had the ability and willingness to hold it for decades. The ability and willingness to hold it for, for decades. As an individual investor, I'm not beholden to anybody but myself. I don't have to prove my strategy. I don't have to hit performance targets. I don't have to come up with reporting on 90-day periods. I don't, have to, I don't have a boss I have to explain what I'm doing to. That is such an underrated advantage. I have no career risk by buying a bad stock and holding a bad stock for a long time. Professionals sure do. But my only edge, I'm not smarter than the market. I don't have better analytical skills than the market. But I do have permanent capital. And that is a huge, that's a, that's a massive advantage. And I, and I have a willingness to hold things for a long period of time. And I have a willingness to endure very high volatility for a long period of time. So that, that's where my edge comes from. It's not because I'm smarter or my system is better or anything like that. My edge is my ability and willingness to hold. So I better use that ability. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to do terrible. How do you structure, like if somebody came to you and they said, okay, I agree with that in theory, like <laughs> what is the best advice that you would have to somebody to make sure that they don't put themselves in a position where they have to liquidate at the wrong time? This is, Or conversely, the other thing too is how, how would you coach people up to mentally prepare for the inevitable 40% drawdown in something like Zoom? So there's some things that you can't teach people. You can't teach people what a 30% decline feels like. You can't teach people yeah. what it's like to invest through a bear market. Because it's, it's so easy. I wasn't an investor in, in the dot-com bust. Right? I invested soon after that. So I didn't experience the hype beforehand or the, the fallout afterwards. So if I look back at a chart of the Dow... It's, I can easily say in hindsight, oh, obviously, obviously these great businesses were way overpriced. Obviously, they, they didn't have durable businesses. And obviously, but if you still picked the Amazons and the Microsofts and the great businesses of the world and held through that huge downturn, obviously you'd be okay. Looking at a past chart of that happening is one thing. Living through it second by second 
second guessing yourself, the psychological toll that that takes on you over a long period of time. I mean, you can't teach somebody what that feels like. You just can't. More recently, the downturn in growth stocks that started in what, like February, I think of this year, basically growth stocks did nothing but go up from March until March of 2020 until February of 2021. And then they, they suddenly sold off 10, 15, 20%. And a whole bunch of new investors were freaking out about that small decline. Freaking out. Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, Jim Cramer said that he thought that it may have ruined their faith in the markets or something, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, I, I, I can understand that because the only thing you knew, your day-to-day experience was stocks go up, stocks go up, stocks go up. If you find the great stocks, they'll just they'll reward you immediately. And that's just not how the market market works. So how do you explain to new investors when the market just goes, when the only thing they know is immediate success? Sucks when it goes down. How do you explain that to them? Yeah. You can't. You can say it, but that's something you just have to uh, experience. But to your, your question before, how do, how do I deal with that? A couple of things. Uh, first off, this gets, oh, it's almost never talked about in the investment community, but I'm a firm believer that person, your personal finances are like a hundred times more important than your investing finances. They mm-hmm. just are. I'm a huge believer in paying off all your debt, all of it, mortgage and everything. Even though mathematically that's dumb, it's just dumb when interest rates are where they are today. But if you can pay off all your debt, you just have a mental clarity and an ability to withstand risk, risk and volatility like nobody else, because you know that money is not automatically leaving your account every month. Your fixed costs are just so much lower than they would be if you had a a mortgage. Number two is keeping an emergency fund. If you have a big emergency fund and you know that no matter what happens to my portfolio, I could lose my job, something bad could happen and I got it covered. Like That just provides you with, again, mental clarity. And then number three is having multiple streams of income. If your household is one income from one job and then March of February of 2020 happens and 10 million people suddenly lose their job and all of a sudden your your income is gone and you have very little ability to get a new job and you have debt bills to pay I mean and your portfolio is cratering like holy cow is that a lot to take in at once and it's really hard to look at your portfolio and say I know it's going to come back I know it's going to come back but if you don't have the ability to withstand <laughs> the downturn of course you're going to panic sell at the, at the absolute worst time. And as Nassim Taleb points out, your investment returns aren't going to be from when you start till when you need them. It's going to be from when you start until you sell. And if you are forced to liquidate yeah. at the worst possible time, it doesn't matter how well you invested. Your returns are from when you started till the forced liquidation, which is going to be bad. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that part of where I may take this podcast for the reasons that you're saying is a little bit more in the personal finance realm. Not like I'm not going to lean too heavy into it because I really do enjoy the investment stuff, but I completely agree with you that like your investment returns don't actually matter if your personal finances suck, right? You're just not going to have one. You're not going to have enough to, to invest. And two, like the, I sometimes I feel as though I'm way too focused on the stock picking side of the world and not nearly enough focused on maximizing 
the opportunities that are there to me in the personal finance realm. And some of it, like, I don't even know because I'm so focused on the stock picking stuff that I don't even, or now, now like media, I haven't really looked at stocks in a while and it's actually kind of freeing. I don't actually care very much. I thought that I would care, but I like doing you're, this. You were focused on, you're overly so, focused on the candy and not enough on the vegetables. That's right. Yeah. I like candy and, too. And I think, uh, <laughs> I just, I just have yeah. it after dessert. I just have it after I eat my vegetables. Yeah, that's right. I think too, like if I, I would like to distribute some knowledge and I think that personal finance is really important to distribute. How do you deal with having such a public figure, like something that I was not prepared to encounter was like, I started out sort of this side of my career by leaving a bank. I didn't want to disappear. So I got into manual of ideas and Twitter and stuff, not so that I would stay sharp. And, you know, if I ever needed a job, I wouldn't just say to people, Hey, I've been working, I promise. And if I need a job, it's probably because my returns aren't great, but I promise I was working hard. Now I feel as though I'm in a position where people might actually be listening to me and it terrifies me. How do you deal with that? Like, do you feel pressure? Did you feel pressure? Is it sort of like, uh, you know, buyer beware? Like, how do you how do you uh, deal with that? I'll just ask it seven different times. <laughs> um, I'll let you know. I'm, this is still this is still yeah. new to me. Rewind the clock, fifteen months, and I had seven thousand followers. Right? I was. Did you seriously? Yeah. Oh my goodness, dude! What? How did you build your account so quickly? That's nuts. You figure I, I got I got better. I suck less yeah. at tweeting now. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's wild, man. You got a but, huge account. Yeah, it is kind of it is kind of weird when, as you know, when you put something out into the world, you are viewing it through your lens. You are saying it through the way that you would interpret it. And when it comes to communication, you could say the simplest thing: pay off your debt, and people will interpret that in different ways. Like, and, and some people would just interpret yeah. it that like you're attacking them <laughs> or, or they're like, that's a dumb idea because of A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> and it's like, so yeah. Twitter, Twitter is such a wonderful communication tool, but it doesn't allow for or reward nuance. And of, of course there's nuance to everything. Every, every investing yeah. concept has plenty of nuance, but Nobody wants to read a, a thousand word tweet about that covers all the nuance of something. But yeah, I, like you, it is weird to have people actually read what I'm doing because it's not like I've, I'm, I'm new to tweeting or I'm new to writing or I'm new to sharing ideas. What's new is that people actually care. So I'm still dealing with that too. Yeah. Let me know if you have any tips. I don't, man. I'm actually going to a psychologist today to deal with this stuff a little bit because it's... I'm just, it's a part of my life that I've never had to deal with. And I think that it's a part that I need to be better about understanding that, like when I say this isn't financial advice, I'm very hopeful that people will listen because people are really just listening to a brain that I promise them is tortured at times. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure all this out too, you know? Uh, I keep this. I have tons of, I have sticky notes that I can't, I realize it's just backwards on my screen, but I have a sticky note right that I keep right in my line of sight. And it says three things. One, don't take anything personally. Two, be yeah. positive. Three, people have bad days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, 
I still well, you know, suck the other thing, man. don't take anything personally. <laughs> like, I really suck at it. <laughs> Doesn't mean it, a constant reminder right there isn't useful. And I just always remind myself, it's, people have bad days. People, especially on, on mediums like social media, you can tweet something and then regret it like two minutes later or not even think about it. And the person that you tweeted it to might think about that for the rest of the day. Like that, like a bad, a bad tweet yeah. might ruin somebody's day, but you just got to remember that if you have an audience, if 99% of them like you and 1% hate you <laughs> or, or disagree with something, that 1% is going to be what you hear from and think about. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's, it's human nature to over, overly focus on the negative stuff. So constant reminders and, and just telling myself, telling myself my brand is positive, period. That's, that's, that's yeah. what I want to exist in the world. And there's plenty of negativity, and I refuse to add to it. I like that. That's healthy. You know, it's, it's funny. Like I think you and I agree on a lot of things, looking through what you say. And, you know, I had the conversation with Preston Pish, and like I can't help if people get triggered by Bitcoin. <laughs> Like, that's not on me. <laughs> and the other thing is, like, I am not the arbiter of Bitcoin truth. Like, I don't even, I, I think it's interesting. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, if you came in because you listened to Preston, I'm not, you know, I'm sorry if I'm letting you down when I say this. I, I, I think it's an interesting asset. But I, you know, it's sort of like art to me. It sort of has value because it has value. But I can understand why people like that. I can sort of understand what people see. And I kind of wanted to talk to Preston. Well, you know, I get like these comments that I didn't have the debate that other people wanted me to have. And it's like, that's your debate. That's not my debate. <laughs> I don't even care. And then people are like, you got to get a you got to get a skeptic on the podcast. And it's like, bro, I'm making my own art. I'm going to talk to people I want to talk to. You can get a podcast if you'd like a skeptic. So it's just kind of... um. I don't know. I do think I need to work through some of that and being better about not letting that stuff get in my head. It's just never something I've had to deal with before. Tell yourself this. Them commenting and then giving criticism means they care. They're yeah. expressing it in an unpleasant way, but they wouldn't take the time to reach out and type back if they didn't care. And would it be better That's to true. put something out there and then get no feedback? That means nobody cares. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, the guy that the guy that I'm specifically thinking about is a thoughtful person and does care. There are a couple people that are kind of jerks, but whatever. They've got something else going on in their life they have to look they at. They might be having a bad How'd day. How'd you get so positive? What? That's right. How'd you get so positive? I'm spoiled. I have a great life. I got my dream job at the Motley Fool five years ago. I work from home. Like I've I've had such fortune in my life. And I learned this from Mr. Money Mustache more than anybody else. You know, Mr. Money Mustache, you familiar with Pete? Yeah. Great. Great. I've learned so much and, from him. I mean, whatever he's doing I've now. Learned so much from him. Yeah. One of the most important things I've learned from him is the concept of money and happiness. And he has this just wonderful saying about like vacations. You can go on vacation and spend any amount of money and have a bad time. And you can go on vacation mm. And spend any amount of money and have a great time. You could go camping yeah. with friend. You could go camping in your friend's backyard 
and have a fantastic, memorable, life-changing time. You could go to Disney, stay on property, have fast passes, spend thousands on food and all that kind of stuff and get frustrated at all the little things that go wrong and your kids are cranky and the weather's bad and just have a just and, and they screw up your luggage and maybe there's like, you know, a hair in your food and it's like you can spend any amount of money and have a bad time. So therefore, the spending of the money doesn't really lead to happiness. It's your interpretation <laughs> of what's happening that leads to happiness. And every day I remind myself I have another sticky note that just says gratitude right here. Gratitude. I'm talking to you today. This is my job. How lucky am I? Yeah. I, I, I slept yeah. in a clean, comfortable bed last night. I woke up and had unlimited access to coffee and hot water and food. My kids are at school. They're, they're wearing masks, but they're physically at school. Like, if you back up, it's like, God, I'm so spoiled. Makes you happy. Yeah. Dude, it's such a pleasure. Matt told me, he's like, you're going to like talking to Brian. And it's like, it's a pleasure to talk to people with that kind of outlook because there's so much, I think, of life. And look, man, part of why I needed to take a step back from, like, I was doing a lot of media and I was on Twitter a lot trying to get this podcast going and it took a lot of effort and like, I feel like I was on a full blown dopamine binge. <laughs> and then I, you know, and then I wasn't even present when I was home. I either had like a podcast in my ear or whatever. And then all of a sudden I'm like snapping at my kids and I don't even understand why. And it's like, I should be really happy right now. And I found myself so like rushed and I don't even know what the right word was, but it, it wasn't not happy. That's not, I wasn't depressed, but I was very anxious at all times. And I was just like, I gotta, I gotta turn everything off for a bit. I like doing things like this. Like I, I love having these conversations. So I've continued to record, but I don't know. A lot of it really was just taking a step back and being grateful. It's, it's very powerful. It makes all the difference in the world. It, it, it really does. And by the way, I suck at all those things you just said. I still suck at it. I, I love being on social media. I love producing content. I love interacting with people. I suck at, I, I'm getting better, but I'm still quite bad at presence. Like being being there, like my mind, like you just said, is, is in different places when I'm around the dinner table and stuff like that. So I still suck at a, a lot of those things and I'm, I'm working on them. But I still think if you just zoom out and just think like the time that we live in, there's an endless amount of negativity if you search for it, and there's an endless amount of positivity if you search for it. So search for positivity. The trouble thing is that takes effort. Yeah. It takes no effort to turn to find negativity. So, but, but you <laughs> have to true. really filter, find ways to filter out the negativity and focus on the positivity. My sense is that the fool, and this is going to sound really silly to people that have worked there since I've never been there, but that's like very David Gardner. I would, is, is that like an ethos around there? Or, I mean, I know it's hard when you have such a big organization. I'll just let that hang out there. You don't have to answer unless you really want to, but it seems like a cool place. It seems like that's the outcome. So outlook. I don't physically work at the headquarters. I'm a, I'm a contractor that works remotely, but yeah, well, you said I remote, literally yeah. take vacations to the Motley Fool headquarters every year. 
Oh, yeah? I, that, that is an enjoyable vacation for me to physically go down there and see, see those people in person. And if you've never, if you've never been to the Valley Fool headquarters, they have a tour that they do when it was, you know, open. It's just a wonderful place. Like conference rooms are named after board games. There's like Nerf guns. There's nap rooms. There's snack bars. They, they have board games upon board games that you can do. They have like a library. It's just an awesome environment to be in. And all the people that work there, I've never, I've never met somebody that was like, I don't like that person. Like they have, they have such a good huh. filter. They have That's such cool. a good filter for letting people in that it's just, it's just a great place. This is going to sound like some new age millennial stuff, but do you think that an attitude of gratitude is necessary for like successful growth investing or or not necessary, but do you think it helps you a lot? Like get through some of the inevitable drawdowns and focus on the long term and, and some of that stuff can't hurt, but I don't do it because I think it's going to make me a better investor. I think it's going to make me a, happier human (laughs) yeah no doubt no doubt i just you know i just kind of thinking about how it all ties together sometimes i feel and this is maybe unfair to my value brethren and i'm sorry if i'm casting people in the wrong light but sometimes i think value people are a little more curmudgeon (laughs) a little more contrarian there there is something to that yeah and i I think there's something about wanting a deal where a lot of the times it's like mass panic or something that you're exploiting or something's going on. This is unfair. This is overly (laughs) broad, but I just kind of wonder if there's some sort of overlap in, in thought and and style. I think to be a value investor, you have to be more contrarian than, than, than normal, more, more independent thinker than, than normal, because you have to like when a stock is falling, hard because something bad happened at the business, but you can go in and say, and, and you have the mindset and the ability to say, well, it's not as bad as the stock prices is indicating. I think that does take a certain, a certain contrarianism, a certain independent uh, ism to, uh, to be able to do that. So if that ability is also correlated with a different outlook on life, well, that's just the way it is. I think the really tough thing of that game though is I, some of the more dangerous words that I've ever uttered to myself and post market actually said this, so shout out to them, but is it's priced in. <laughs> right. And when you go th- when you go through that chart that you showed on what companies would you have had to pay, you know, to to return eight percent, right? What could you have paid? Like Alcoa you had to pay lower than the bid, Bank of America you had to pay lower than the bid. It's one of those things that like, I think a lot of the times if you're too valuation focused, or at least when I am, I've been willing to overlook like very serious business risk and justify it as valuation. And the more that I've talked to more qualitative investors, the more I've realized what a big error that was. This is a point that my friend Brian Stoffel hammers home all the time. He's a fantastic investor and he, his his style, he doesn't even look at valuation. It's not even on his radar. His style of investing is called the anti-fragile portfolio. He looks for mission-driven companies, uh, founder-led management teams, optionality, wide moat, no concentration risk, a strong balance sheet, and free cash flow. If you have those things, he wants to own it. You don't have those things, he doesn't want to own it. Valuation is not a part of the equation. He's just like, a big part of his reasoning is the future is unknowable. 
unknowable. I'm not going to even try and guess the future. I'm going to buy companies that are most likely to thrive no matter what happens. He's done great. He's thrashed the market. I am going to ask you for an introduction because I'm going to need to sure. follow up. On oh, he'd this be a great guest. Him. But I guess like, yeah, I'd like to talk to him. I guess like the thing that's ringing through my head is like, boy, is this a late market, like a late cycle comment. But the thing <laughs> that I would have to be honest about with that, with what I just said is if you asked me in 2015 if things were rich, I probably would have said yes. If you asked me in 2017, I would have said yes. If you asked me in 2019, I would have like, I've never looked at the market and been like, oh boy, it's screamingly cheap, except for I I thought in March 2020, there were like some very obvious bargains out there. 2009, I was too young to really understand that I should have been buying with both hands and whatever. That's a too late old, too soon, what? Too late smart, too soon old, whatever. But yeah, like, you know what I mean? It's it's hard to think of an investment strategy that doesn't care about valuation. But then it's also hard to look at results and say, boy, there might be something to this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, I just think of like, rewind the clock five years. You could have probably come up with the DCF that says, GE is cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you could have. Poor you could have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the underlying things uh, that GE had uh, not going good, and that stock just went down hard. And you could five years ago, heck, three years ago, oof, Shopify, expensive, very expensive. Yeah, you can't justify it. Look at the results. That's one that really hurts because I was smart enough in December of 2018 to know that the churn issue was not an issue. What I was not smart enough to understand was that that stock was not expensive, <laughs> right? Shopify was so, recommended to me at 25, 30, 40, 50, 80, 100, 120. Pass, 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 pass. I finally said, I like it at 200. I was way late, way late. Yeah. I paid a huge premium. Worked out okay so far. Hmm. That's interesting. So what are you looking for in deterioration in your thesis? I, I like, are you in the David Gardner camp of just like never sell it no matter what? Or are you somebody that will sell if you start to see fundamentals erode? There are uh, 11 reasons that I'll sell. It's, it, by the way, it's like- I love how prepared you are for random <laughs> questions. <laughs> like we, we didn't script any of this and you're like, oh, I got this right it's, here. It's almost like, it's almost like I write things down. And then know how to access them. It's true. By the way, it's, a, it's yes. a fantastic exercise to ask yourself, when do I sell? Ask yourself that. Write down your thoughts. Yeah. Categorize them. How simple is that? How many people do that? Yeah. 11 reasons. Not many. I have it on a couple assets. I don't have it on all of them. I don't know if you want me to go through all of them. I can quickly go through them. They- yeah, no, I'd okay. love to hear it sure. if you don't mind. Number one. Most popular reason I sell, I was wrong. The reason I bought the stock, wrong. My thesis, wrong. I screwed up something about uh, the research. The Under Armour. I was a shareholder of Under Armour for a long time. Kevin Plank, bankable, great brand, tons of room for growth. 
Wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> they really destroyed that brand. Kevin Plague really took his eye off the ball. It's been a, tr- it's been a cultural train wreck for a company. I was wrong. Uh, TripAdvisor. Oh, number one search place they go to. They control the value of search. People go through TripAdvisor to make decisions on travel. I, I certainly did. A founder-led business. They've really screwed that up. That company had huge customer concentration risk. Uh, Expedia and Priceline were number two and number one and number two, like 40% of that company's revenue each or something like that. It's been a disaster of a business. Grubhub. Oh, the number one, the biggest platform for meal delivery is going to be the winner. The most restaurants, the most buyers. How do you compete with that? Along comes Uber Eats. Along comes Postmates. Screw that. Like, yep, wrong. I was wrong. So that's number one. My, something about the original, the original reason that I bought the company was proven wrong. That's number one. So if I'm wrong, I'll say, well, I'm wrong. Sell, take, take my losses. Number two, this is rare, but uh, accounting irregularities. Can we just like sure. real quick follow up on this? Because I'm like Comcast is ringing out in my head. I sold Comcast. It's probably a mistake. Everybody that's on Comcast, I understand it's a mistake. I get it. What I don't like about that entity is the content strategy, and I fundamentally don't believe in it. I don't know that that was enough to declare myself wrong, but I do know that I wasn't willing to lose to that risk. How do you, like, at what point do you cut the leash and say, hey, I'm wrong. I mean, I, I know it's situation yeah. dependent. It's a stupid question, but I'm just trying to think through like, you know, at what inning are you sort of adjusting what you're saying? It's where a journal comes in yourself. handy. Because you can't, yeah. it's, it's very easy to convince yourself of other things. <laughs> if you don't write things yeah. down, you, your thesis can change because businesses change, situations change. It's like, oh, well, it's not that bad. Right? Yeah, sure. I bought this company because it was run by its founder. Now it's no longer run by its founder, but that doesn't matter because it's still business is still awesome, right? So it's everything. Everything's situational. Yeah, that's right. Plus, if you just don't believe in Comcast, find something else. I, I don't want to say like, that for you. I don't want to say that because people are going to be mad. And Brian Roberts is way smarter than me, and I'm not trying to be a you know like that. It's just it was a train. Not I had to not get every off winner of. is meant for you. Period. Yeah, well, and I owned it for a while, so it's not like it didn't do well. But okay, continue. So number if you one, don't mind. thesis busted. Number two, accounting irregularities. If I can't trust the numbers, you're dead to me forever. Period. There are so many great businesses out there where you can trust the numbers. Why bother? If there's accounting problems, forget it. Dead. Move on. Yeah. Uh, number three, mega acquisition. I don't like. Relative size here is important. Mm. Apple buys Beats. Even if I hate that acquisition, yeah, it doesn't irrelevant. If, if it's a $3 billion yeah. write-off, irrelevant. Livongo Health buying Tel- uh, Intellidoc merging. That's a $15 billion company and a $16 billion company. That's sizable. If I don't like that, that's thesis changing. So I don't mind saying, I don't like where this business is heading. Uh, I don't like this merger. Sell and move on. You don't like the integration oh, risk oh, there? Big time. Most, most, yeah. I mean, most makes sense acquisitions to me. fail. Most. Yeah. And you ever been, if you've ever been part of a company that buys another company, 
Like I lived through one. It was a long, arduous process. Cultural clashes, management's egos comes out. Well, we bought you. You're going to be firing people. People's the way they. Uh, there's going to be people that are acquired. Do they have any loyalty to the acquiree? Like, yeah, that was tough. I did feel like even when we didn't. So I was at BMO Harris. We bought M and I Bank. Great bank. Great footprint. But it was difficult going through. Like. Okay, well, this is how you did credit. This is how we do credit. We bought you. This is how you do credit now. And people were like, "Well, but we were okay at credit, right?" And it's like, "Yeah, but now you're now things are different." It took a long time. I, I mean, I, I was gone before they had fully integrated, and I was there for a little while, so I get that. They're hard. They're, they ain't easy. Yeah. Some companies are masters at acquiring. Some companies suck at it. But either way. If it's a big acquisition that I don't like, again, if I if I like Livongo Health, but I don't like Teladoc, and Livongo and Teladoc are now the same thing, it's like, well, okay, do I do I want to invest in this other business that I didn't like? That that would be a reason for me to say I'm out. Yeah. Number four, thesis complete with no compelling second act. AKA, I bought this company for this opportunity. The opportunity was realized. There's no second act. There's no, I don't see any optionality that takes things to the next phase. That would be like if organic revenue growth starts declining below 5%, if profit growth falls below uh, 10%, or if I just think the company is too big to succeed, I'll declare victory and move on or scale out, start to scale out over time. Uh, number five, cultural deterioration. So Glassdoor ratings plunge. There's a mass management exodus, a leadership transition. I don't like a sudden founder departure. Leadership transitions are tough. So if I see signs that the culture is deteriorating, I'll sell. Number six, and this one's really hard, uh, extreme valuation compared to the opportunity. Hmm. I will pay any valuation for a $1 billion business or $2 billion business if I think that business could be worth $20 billion, $30 billion, $50 billion. I'll pay any value. Like If I really am excited about a business and it's trading at 100 times sales and it's a $1 billion company, I'm like, this opportunity, this could be a $10 billion company, right? The valuation is irrelevant. Yeah. Snowflake is a $90 billion business right? So to get a 10 bag of return or a five bag, you have to believe that that company is going to be worth $500 billion or a trillion dollars or whatever. So paying a huge valuation plus a huge market cap. I'll, I'll, yeah, dude, we see this the same. And I think that's, that could be a little bit of an issue when companies are staying public or private yes. longer. This could be a headwind, that sort of growth focus people suffer or at least need to be mindful of let's put it this totally. that way right rather than say suffer from that's sort of stupid but and of course got to be mindful the, the crazy thing is you could have said well zoom's 40 billion dollars it's a it's a video chat 40 billion dollars how big and plus a high valuation how big can it get well now it's i don't know 100 billion 200 billion i, I don't even know, know zoom's but is an example and that's it's just really hard uh, to do so but if i yeah. if i just can't see that business being worth many multiples of where it is today, I will, I'll, I'll start to trim out. 
and sell. It's part of why I laid the bet that I laid against Austin Lieberman when I did curate versus Zoom. Because at the time, it was like, I think Zoom was like a $90 billion business mm-hmm. or something. And I was like, okay, well, if I think Curate can double in two and a half years, Zoom would have to be a $200 right. billion dollar company. And then at what point would, would that imply? And it was just kind of like a law of large numbers bet more than anything. That, right. So, and again, that's really tricky. It's, re- it's really tricky. But yeah. it is the reason I will. I so. also underappreciated what Zoom is, yep, to be same. fair. He, he was right on Me that. Too. Number seven if a position gets too large in my portfolio. So I will allow an amazing and low risk business like MasterCard, like Amazon to become a 15% position for me. If it's an amazing but very high risk business, I'll cut it off at 10%. So if it's like, if it was a very speculative position that I took that I just really nailed and got, got lucky on, I'll be more willing to trim if it's not as high quality of a business as I thought at 10%. Number eight, I'm no longer interested in following the company. Huh. Just I'm, I'm done with Comcast. I don't want to follow it anymore. All right. Yeah. There's a hundred other companies that are, are, are interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah, that's not very scientific, no, but I like nope, it. But I will, I will sell. Number nine, if the company gets acquired, right? If it gets acquired in, in stock, then you have a decision to make. Do I want to the acquiree becomes your new investment. So sometimes if, if a company gets bought out, I will almost always sell before the acquisition gets goes through and redeploy. Number 10, I need the money for my personal life, aka the reason we invest in the first place. Why do we invest? Yeah. <laughs> so we can have a nice life. So if I want to do a kitchen remodel, I've sold stocks. If I buy a new car, go on vacation, I'll sell. Right? That's the yeah. reason we invest. And then finally, number 11, tax loss harvesting. So if like, if uh, I'm down at a company and I don't, think, I, I, I don't think it has a bright future ahead and I just want to realize a tax loss, I'll sell. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I, we have a lot of overlap, how I've morphed into. I, I need to have a, something that I can pull up. I like how you have 11 overarching things i have specific assets that i'm looking for like things that happen in them for instance like i i am sort of intrigued by this u.s marijuana mso thesis just from a funds flow idea because i just think there's a lot of funds that are precluded from investing that may invest but like i don't actually know when i'd be wrong on that other than things need to open up if the flows don't happen then i'm wrong right but that's like it's that's just like a market structure thing that's not like a business bet and if i lose on that kind of bet i probably deserve it right that's a that is a undisciplined thing to play but i've also seen some crazy stuff happen and i'm intrigued by playing with crazy i'm perfectly fine with speculation perfectly yeah, fine with it that's right as I, long as you position yeah, it accordingly I think it's intelligent. and know and know yeah. and know that you can handle the downside yeah, it's pretty tiny, and that's exactly how I deem it. I deem it intelligent speculation with the possibility of monitoring a space that's, I think, going to grow for a very long time and I think has underappreciated benefits. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to argue that's a strict investment. Specula- it's speculating like- is perfectly fine as long as you position it accordingly. I own a company that doesn't have any revenue. It's purely oh, yeah? a speculation, but... I liked I liked enough. Is it to, a SPAC? Hmm? Is it a SPAC? Like no, it's a, a it's a, a perspective. It's uh, going through the FDA approval process now. 
Now, how do you like a lot of healthcare and biotech is in that? I, I just can't get myself there. But I guess you say to yourself, if this works, the opportunity is so large that it makes sense to to put you know point three percent on or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first off, biotech. Uh, I covered biotech for the Motley Fool for two years, and that really taught me biotech is hard. Like really, yeah. really, really hard. So I just know myself that nope, just biotech isn't for me. Medical devices are a different breed altogether. I was a medical device salesperson for a company that came public for over 10 years. And I just saw firsthand how brand, how loyal providers can be to certain devices, to certain techniques, to certain trainings, and how hard it is to get them to switch, even if you truly have something that is, that is better. So that's just an industry that I understand, but I typically don't take FDA, FDA risk. Like I typically wait till after the company has completely de-risked itself, like after the company's generating revenue, which means they've nailed reimbursement, they've gotten providers on board, they've gotten the product out there, et cetera. And I want to see clear signs of market adoption before I'll invest because that, then the thesis is this thing that's working is just going to keep working for a long time. That's a thesis I can get behind and and uh, I'm willing to put capital at risk for. And occasionally I'm willing to invest before that, but it's very it's very occasional and it's with a tiny bit of my portfolio. I have one of the fans, Guillermo, if you're listening, shout out to you. And he's been telling me about a medical device company. And one of the things he said is he's like, you got to understand how the buying of medical devices works. And, you know, he's like, just look at Stryker, for instance. Once people are buying this equipment, like, it just doesn't make sense to go with different equipment. You got doctors that are trained on it. The the failure rate is low. So, like, why would you introduce a potential for failure in other, you know, equipment when the impact can be so devastating? Like, once you're in, you're in. Has that been your experience? Oh, yeah. Big time. Not only that, but you have to think of economics, too. So let's say let's say a doctor gets trained on Striker, Striker's products. Somebody comes along with a something that's different and it's cheaper. Does the doctor care about price? Is no. the doctor paying the bill? No. So in other words, for the doctor to switch, they have to go through a process. They have to sever yeah. their relationships. They have to go through new training. Uh, they have to get their staff and their hospital set up for this new system. And then there's no economic benefit for them to do so. Can you see how there'd be resistance yeah. there? God, yeah, I still have sure. an iPhone. What's the difference between an iPhone and a Chrome? Nothing. Oh, a lot. You don't want no. You don't want to go green. That's disgusting. And, uh, that would be terrible. But like, you would get used, cut out of text chat. I'm chats. so used to using my iPhone. I'll pay a premium because I don't want to learn a new operating system. Or lots of people don't want to don't want to learn. But so that's 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 my point is. Once you take the time to learn something, it's hard to get you to, to switch to something else. Uh, and doctors are people, <laughs> so they're, they're just a human. So that, that's one reason why I like medical devices. And especially if, if a business is going in there and they are having huge sales growth, you know they are doing something special because it is convincing doctors to switch. That's hard. Hmm. That makes sense to me. I saw this firsthand with Henry Schein, the dental mm-hmm. tool company. And that was how it was explained to me. They Their strategy 
was to get into dental schools, right? So then you have a lot of dentists that are trained on Henry Schein tools. And then once they become a dentist, they're just not going to switch. Similarly, Kevin's at Lugal, if you're listening, shout out to you, man. He reached out to me early in the pandemic and called Zoom perfectly. And he was like, look, Zoom is in all of the classrooms here. Like He's, you know, at a, as a professor. And he was like, it's it, there. It's everywhere. Like they have won this market. And that was a very, very smart decision that Zoom made, right? To get integrated into student workflows. Because now everybody, now you can say Zoom, it's almost like a Kleenex. Same with Adobe and uh, digital schools. Same with Autodesk and engineering schools. Yeah, that's right. Make those investments early. It's... Yeah. And you know, what's so stupid of me, man, is for the longest time I was like, oh, well, software is going to, it has such attrition. Like there's no moat. And then like Shomik was asking me once, he's like, when's the last time you learned a new operating system? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I, it's amazing how like in the past I, and, and this isn't a stock price bro comment. This is a legitimate business results comment. I have underestimated how powerful businesses are because I've allowed valuation to turn my brain off. So when I've seen something that's very highly valued, I've been like, oh, this is stupid. Peloton. I was a moron on Peloton. I own a Peloton. (laughs) I love Peloton. I am a net promoter of Peloton. And I didn't even allow myself to see the opportunity because of valuation. And that's like really dumb. That's a hard one. And and, uh, and, yeah. and I think that Peloton's a hard a hard one because it's a hardware play. So the software keeps you around. But it, it's it's kind of like an Apple, like with the they sell premium products at a very premium price tag, and it's really the software that keeps you around. So it's that you have to just you have to be willing to to understand and go for that. So I got Peloton wrong too. So don't feel bad. I'll tell you where I've morphed on that particular name, and I and I'm not. I haven't bought it or anything like that, but why I would be open to buying it is I actually think that like a distributed, so their app is a good app. You don't have to have a Peloton to use it. 35 bucks a month for a reasonably good personal trainer is actually quite good value. So I I have still been hung up because I don't know if I like the idea of having to take like a phone to your gym and then you're like watching a personal trainer on your phone at the gym that sells personal training services. That feels like some social friction that may be uncomfortable. But if there was like a wearable device, if you could just throw on some glasses and just like AR watch a workout while you were doing your workout, right? Like it was actually a virtual personal trainer. I think that market could be massive. Could be. And yeah. and again, that's a hard one to get. And one thing I will say, one thing that is constantly underrated about companies like Peloton, this happens all the time. It's very easy to say, well, once Nordic Track takes this market seriously, bye-bye yeah. Peloton. Once GM yeah, that's, that's gets really obvious. serious about electric cars, bye-bye Tesla. Once Walmart yeah. takes e-commerce seriously, Amazon is toast. It's very easy yeah. to make those those arguments, but the truth is that when a company comes along and really carves out a market for itself and it captures mind share, 
that's actually a hard thing to, to, to knock off. It's not impossible, but it's like, it's very easy to say, oh, once David gets into this, uh, once, once Goliath gets into this market, David is, is done. It's like an, it's an easy narrative to, to say, but if you look at, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of counterexamples of that company that is creating that market for itself. It's got the mind share. And it can continue to grow even in the face of competition. Like history is just littered with examples of that happening. Yeah, especially when you have a cult brand. Yes. Right. Like, I mean, Peloton, I, I am part of a cult. Like, I get it. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, fine. Like, whatever. I think Lululemon wearers, the early adopters, were part of a cult. Like, I think this cult brand dynamic is very, very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it's, it's hard to handicap where it would go. So if I were running something similar to like your strategy, do you think that maybe my mind would would operate a little bit like this? I might say it's an incredible bike. I like the bike. I think that the interactivity of the classrooms engenders like real loyalty. It's a founder-led organization and management team that you know, really has big ambitions and has proven like has proven the ability to execute far in excess of what I would have modeled or thought was possible. So taking a small position today makes sense. And then I monitor it. And then as it goes well, I would add to it. And if it doesn't, I just sort of let it fade to the sunset. Is that that's how I would approach it. But Peloton is a $29 billion. I'm not asking you yeah, I'm not asking for like a recommendation no, 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 no. on Peloton. I'm just thinking, I'm yeah. I'm just telling you how I would think about it. Peloton's okay, a $29 cool. billion dollar business. Is Peloton a hundred, yeah, is it Peloton a hundred billion dollar idea? You know, man, if they can get to a hundred million subs or whatever the <laughs> heck they want to get to, like then yeah, but I agree with you. It could be a tough road. That would be my, that would be my hang up. But clearly the business is great brand, founder led, if executed extremely well, there's, a, a huge and growing unpaid sales force that you are a part of. <laughs> yeah. There's there's value there. That's right. I'm paying for this podcast to to basically talk about <laughs> yeah, them while I drink a like Starbucks it. coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So I but I would have to believe I would have to believe that Peloton was at least a hundred fifty billion idea. I, I yeah. to to buy today I would have to be believe that it's a five bagger. I don't know if I believe So that. is that what is that your filter? You're looking for five ba- baggers? Depends on the company, right? Or a filter? Yeah, I, I just want to understand. All right, I know the risk that I'm taking by buying this. I'm buying a hardware maker. I'm paying a premium valuation, and I'm paying $29 billion. Like, if this was a $3 billion idea, if this was a $3 yeah. billion business to me, it'd be like, pfft. is Peloton a $30 billion idea? Yes. 10x potential. I'll pay, I'll pay yeah. any valuation. It checks out the boxes. Yeah. Is it a three hundred billion dollar idea? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. that, 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 that's just the way the lens that I would I would look it through. And it's not that Peloton isn't a bad company or bad investment or any of that stuff today. It's just that okay, I could buy Peloton, or I could buy any of the other hundred stocks that I track. Which one is the better yeah. combination of quality, potential, valuation right now? That's what I want to buy. Yeah, I totally dig. And I think you're right. It's looking at the skew, right? The distribution outcomes, what's possible, what's not. And I, for a long time, you know, it, it's funny when you were going through your checklist of things you don't like that one of the very first things that I ever pitched was Budweiser, AB InBev, right? Went through a massive acquisition, 
was having some problems, lots of leverage, growth slows. I look at it and I say, well, the relative scale advantage of this business is huge. The margins are huge. These, like, I do think 3G is good operators. I understand they have some brands that are swimming upstream, but they've also built some good brands. Like, I'm not in the these guys are idiots camp at all. But what I really didn't ask myself and, and why I, I think that that pitch was not a good pitch was like, what's the real upside here? Right. And then how many different ways could this go wrong? And what's the downside if I'm wrong? And I just think the skew of the bet, I don't I don't think there was enough potential upside to justify what would have happened. Now, the obvious thing then to say is, well, what's the probability of the skew? But I think in retrospect, I, I almost certainly overweighted the probability of a good outcome just based on business results. Like I, the business has underperformed what I thought that it would. I, you know, they'd fired their CEO. So I don't think they're thrilled with it. And, you know, then there was a pandemic. None of those things are great, but it's kind of interesting. And, and that's my brain has started to actually seek expensive and small would be a combination that I am more intrigued by now. Whereas when I started all this big and cheap was kind of like what I used to want. And now I'm now I see big and cheap is a great way to lose money. Sounds like you're sounds like you've learned a lot of the same lessons that I have the hard way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's why I've been so intrigued by the fool's way of looking at things and, you know, how David markets his his ideas. I I think that they're it's very very interesting. I I don't know where I'm going to come out on it, but my mind has already shifted a ton. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your biggest mistakes? How much time do you have? <laughs> I got a lot, man. I <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, the, the the biggest dollar mistakes that I've made, I've kind of talked about, which are I overweighted in a sure thing. That was a big mistake for me, buying penny stocks, not looking at all about the business, just focusing on the share price, price of one share. That was a mistake. In dollar terms, it was a small mistake, uh, but it was a big, big mistake that I made. The number one mistake that I've made and I will sadly continue to make this mistake for the rest of my life, is not buying great stocks that are recommended to me by people I trust. Hmm. That'll be by far the most expensive mistake I've ever, I'll ever make and will continue to make. I just know myself. As I said before, Shopify was recommended to me at 25. I passed. It was recommended at 30. I passed. It was recommended at 40. I passed. At 50, passed. 60, passed. 80, passed. 100, passed. <laughs> I finally caved at about 200. But what was, yeah. what, what was the mistake of not buying at 25? Way more. Uh, I lost out on way more money by not buying at 25 than I, than I lost by uh, overweighting Kinder Morgan. Yeah. Now, you know, a cynic's going to say, well, this is a late cycle comment. Maybe. But I don't think that that's true. I think that truth is closer to seeking positive skew in the distribution of outcomes leads to good investment results. And I, I think that that skew can occur in small and expensive. So yes, I agree. If you had ranked my mistakes, uh, number one is not buying. Number two is the opposite of that, which is selling too soon. 
<laughs> I found something awesome and I just didn't hold it long enough. Let's see. I, I sold Microsoft at 24. Ouch. Hmm. Hmm. I sold Dexcom at seven. That's not as well known as Microsoft. Dexcom, DXCM, currently 421. Oh, gosh. Ouch. I, I, I'm sorry for you. I didn't even mean to, re- I, I didn't even mean to react in that way, <laughs> but that would hurt. I sold Insulet, the company I was working for, at 17. That company is currently 300. Oof. So not buying awesome companies that are recommended by people I trust, by far the most expensive mistake. Selling awesome companies way too early, by far the number two mistake. Like all other mistakes that I've made are dwarfed by the, the massive, massive gains that I foregoed from, from mistake one and mistake number two. You know what's been a sort of a life-changing experience for me, and I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but it did. It was like I got a, what do you, you want to get? You want to get red-pilled or blue-pilled? Whatever the pill is that I'm supposed to take, I got it. I had put out a Twitter thread about, or not thread, but a tweet about my grandma. She was up 31x on her Coke investment. What I did not put out on Twitter, but I'll say here, because if somebody's an hour and a half into this, they're probably a fan. Her cost basis in Microsoft is a buck. Her cost basis in Stryker is under a dollar. Her cost basis in Berkshire is like nil. It is amazing to look at what, I mean, she's 92, so she's had a lifetime of compounding. But when I saw what her portfolio was, I was like, holy shit, like owning these good businesses. Now, you know, I wish that I had a detailed accounting of when all the flows went in and would she have been doing better in the S&P? Would she not? I don't think it actually really matters. Like she got Microsoft at one, don't really matter. Yeah. (laughs) I I think, I think it might be like a buck 30, like for real. It's, it's insane. And it's just like, oh my goodness. You know, she's the OG of coffee canning. Yeah. That right there is, I mean, yeah. Microsoft current dividend is $2 and 24 cents. I know. So she gets 200% return on our initial investment in cash every year. <laughs> yeah. Now, Sounds you know, it took favorable. a very, very long. <laughs> yeah, it took a very, very long time to get there, right? But it's like, I maybe there's a more optimal outcome, but who really cares? What you just said is exactly why I'm a long-term investor. You just need yeah. one of those in your life to have all your yeah. financial needs met. I th- well, I know that's right. I don't need to say I think that's right. But what's been interesting to me is I let, I'm a borrow and steal this phase. And again, I'm not trying to like crap on my value friends because I like value investing, but I let the value disease get me into, can I play a re-rating? Can I buy something for 60 cents, sell it for a dollar? And I, I don't know, I, I will still definitely do that game. I mean, I played it on Curate in a big way and it really did sort of change my life for the better, right? So I'm not I'm not saying that it can't, but I, I've shifted my focus more to less of sort of special situation re-ratings. On the other hand, I've also said that they have my heart, so I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I acknowledge that. but I, It's almost like there's it's nuance hard look- in investing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's really tough, right? And where are you going to pick your spots and how are you going to you know, decipher things? I think what I know, well, I shouldn't say I think what I know. What I know 
is I will only bet on people that I trust from here on out and businesses that I think are either massively mispriced or have the potential to be much bigger. That Those are my buckets. Know thyself. Yeah. I'm happy to... And the thing that's... uh, I I personally break up my portfolio into three buckets. One is low-risk compounding machines, the Adobe's of the world, the Autodesk's of the world, the Starbucks of the world. Uh, number two is high, medium risk compounding machines. That would be the Shopify's of the world and the Novacures of the world. And number three is speculation. And that's the, it's only 20% of my portfolio that might aim for them. And that's like high risk, but you know, 10 plus 50 plus hundred plus X returns are available if I'm right. And by keeping the bulk of my wealth in things I'm very confident in and using a little bit on those things I'm not confident in, but if I'm right, wow, can that pay off? I like that combo. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? It it sounds to me like even if that's not like perfect or whatever, it's perfect for you. And that is the most important thing, right? It's the best because version that, that I've found so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm just looking at one of your slides, the the invisible visible thing, where invisible is budgeting, consistency, uh, consistency, content creation, you know, and then visible is the house and stuff. I I love how you communicate with people, and I have to think that as you your Twitter account has exploded to the upside, I didn't realize how high and how quickly. But the scuttlebutt machine's got to be much better, huh? Like your your network, I would think, has substantially gotten better over the last. 16 months. It's the biggest benefit of Twitter. Yeah. Number one. Number one. How much time do you spend talking to people about culture within companies and stuff like that? What do you mean by people? How much? I mean, you know, like somebody on somebody on Twitter reaches out and says, hey, I used to work at Shopify. I'm happy to talk to you about it or whatever. Like, I, I spend a lot of my time doing that now. Oh, that's great. And I'm really grateful for the fans. I wouldn't say that much. I mean, people reach out to me on Twitter all the time about investment ideas and and feedback and that kind of thing. I have learned the hard way to de-emphasize anecdotes and de-emphasize single yeah. point single points of views, de-emphasize de-emphasize especially industry experts that really know the old way of doing things cold. <laughs> hmm. Because and I can say that because I myself I would consider myself an industry expert on the diabetes market expert. I was in it for 10 plus years. I knew every product. I know the details of every product, right? Everything. When Livongo Health came public, I thought this is interesting. And then I reached out to some people in my network and they said, snake oil, this business model doesn't work. It's all, it's all, it's a model that's been tried so many times and it just doesn't work. And they talked me out of investing in Livongo and I missed out on a 10 bagger Hmm. in one year. Hmm. So, and that's not the first time that that happened. It's like when you, when you hear industry, I mean, again, go to the, uh, the auto industry, take any auto expert, ask them, what do they think of Tesla? What would they have said for the last 20 years? Avoid Tesla's it. a tough it's one, very man, hard. but hard, hard, hard to argue with the, uh, yeah. very hard. So let's look at very, very hard, but uh, there's been a whole bunch of people that are extremely bearish on Tesla and have been for the last 10,000%. Yeah, There are a whole bunch of smart people that have been extremely bearish on Bitcoin for the last 500,000%. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> my, yeah. I, I'm one of them. People have asked me years ago, what do you think of Bitcoin? And I said, I studied a lot. I, I've learned a lot about it and I still don't know enough. And I think it's all speculation. And if you bought, and anytime I was asked, man, are you up a lot? So it's just like, yeah. sometimes, sometimes knowing you can know too much. <laughs> there, there is such thing as, as knowing too much and you just see all the risks and all the things that can go wrong and you don't focus enough on the, well, what if this goes right? Yeah. So that's why, that's why I have a speculation portion of my portfolio that I'll say, well, even if I'm wrong here, I'm okay with being wrong because if I'm, if on the small chance I'm right, the, the potential rewards are, could be life-changing. Yeah, man, that's somebody said, uh, you know, what's the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? I don't know. What's the intrinsic value of beachfront real estate? But I'll tell you what I'd buy, like beachfront real estate, if <laughs> I had a discount like to where it is like, or if I could afford it. Right. Like I've just there's a very real thing in life that scarcity accrues value. And I think that some of that has been seen in many different places. But like one place recently has been growth stocks. There's no growth anywhere to speak of economically except for some of these stocks and like i think people they've they've accrued value we'll see whether or not you know it's a bubble i think some people would say it is i'm less convinced it is i i'm okay not having opinions on things like that and i've i've decided to get more interested in them than to form a strong opinion and i think that's how i'm just gonna treat things from here on out the bitcoin i i know every bitcoin bear argument very well. The one bull argument I can't get out of my head is should there be a global currency of the internet? Yeah. I think there should. Is it Bitcoin? Maybe. It's definitely the leading contender. I can't argue with that. Yeah, well, should there be a global currency of the internet? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and then, well, I guess the other part is like, even if there shouldn't be, the question could be reframed, will enough people believe that there should be in order for this to have value? And like, I'm open to the idea that it's yes. I know that that's upsetting to some people, but, but like, we, it's what I see. I view the world through my spoiled American suburban lifestyle. I've never yeah. had to deal with massive currency devaluation. Never had to deal with government seizures. A whole bunch of people around the world have. And for those people, yeah. the idea of putting their money in Bitcoin is better. Billions of people think that putting their money in Bitcoin, or millions of people now, but could there be billions of people that say, forget my government, forget my home currency, I would rather take the volatility of Bitcoin. Yes, but that's hard for me to get because I only know the US dollar. So I think that our yeah. view or my, my view on global currency and all that kind of stuff is skewed by, by that lens that I see the world through. You know where that happened to me was in the alternative lending space. And like when I had that a conversation with Tyrone V. Ross, you know, I think uh, that conversation made some people uncomfortable. That's part of why I had the conversation. Uh, it made me uncomfortable at times too, but it had, it forced me to open my eyes. And like, he is such a passionate advocate for people that need an advocate. And like, when he said to me that he doesn't begrudge payday lenders because they actually give credit to people that need it at the time, 
to me, that was like an earth shattering thing to hear. And that's, that's like totally because I live in a bubble and I get it. And like, maybe I sound stupid right now saying it, but it's the truth. And I just think that I have learned, thank God for Twitter and an open mind and, and whatnot that, you know, N equals one is not reality. And it may sound so stupid to say out loud, but I uh, can echo what you're saying about like the lens I see the world through is not at all the way the lens or the world actually works, right? But another a lot m- to be much less, uh, for. Uh, Another example of that is I, I vividly remember, I think it was like six years ago, Netflix signed some like $100 million deal with Adam Sandler. And I was like, what are they doing? Like his time is so over. Like, what yeah. are they doing? His his content is garbage. You know what gets a lot of views on Netflix? <laughs> Adam Sandler content. Yeah. And they're just like, well, I'm viewing I'm viewing their decision making through my lens of what I like, what content I like, and they are viewing it through their what does the data say people like? And it's just like, well, I, that was actually a really good deal, <laughs> even though I thought it was dumb. Yeah. So I just remind myself of that. It's like my tastes and preferences, as much as sense as they make to me. They make complete no. They make complete opposite sense to a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Netflix is going to be interesting to watch. I, I don't know. This quarter seed of doubted me, so we'll see. Uh, if they're still saying the same in three or four quarters, same thing in three or four quarters, they got a problem. But time will tell on that. Do you want to cover anything else? I don't want to keep you for too long. I've enjoyed talking to you, and I'm definitely going to invite you back on. Awesome. So. You know, I don't know. Is there anything we didn't cover? I had zero expectations coming in other than to have a good chat, and I had a good chat, so. All right, cool. (laughs) At least I didn't uh, let you down with negative, you know, the falling short of zero expectations would have been sad. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Low expectations and gratitude, key to happiness. All right, cool. Well, I think that's a good place to end, man, and I appreciate you joining the podcast, and I look forward to, um, you know, hopefully a relationship that we'll build over time because I really did enjoy this, so thank you. I did too. Sounds great to me.